Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Yes, Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement, translated into 195 different languages. Please remember to keep your comments and questions coming to us, and remember to subscribe to this podcast. A quick shout out to my good friend Merv from Okayama Denim for this beautiful natural indigo shirt. And remember to support the companies that empower our community, especially those that support this podcast, Harborside, Liberty Clothing, and Homegrown. I'd like to take you back for a moment to some of the darkest days of the cannabis freedom movement in the 1980s. George H.W. Bush was president. He had just taken the United States to war in the Middle East. All of the gains that our movement had made in the 1970s and had been wiped out completely. We were keeping on moving, keeping on struggling, but there wasn't even a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. It was a hard, hard time to be a cannabis activist. And then towards the latter part of the middle of the 1980s, Jack Herrer burst on the scene. And Jack gave us this whole new way of looking at cannabis. We had always thought of our struggle as mainly a a freedom struggle, that we had the right to use this plant and nobody had the right to tell us not to. And of course, that was true then, and it's true today. But as much as we loved the plant, there were things we ourselves didn't know about it. And he gave us this much more complete picture And in doing that, Jack really validated our lives and he restored our hope and he energized us and and, and gave us a way to move forward. Today, the whole world is in a really, really dark place, struggling to find hope. Well, the truth that Jack brought us back then is still true today. Hemp can save the world. And just as Jack brought this light to us, it's now up to us, the people who have learned these truths, to take them out to the rest of the world when the world needs them so desperately. The big difference now between then and today is that there's a whole army, a whole tribe of cannabis freedom warriors who are carrying this truth out around the world. And our guest today, Doug Fine, one of my dear, dear friends. He is an author, an activist, an entrepreneur, a rancher. He's written a number of spectacular books that you should check out, including Too High to Fail, Hemp Bound, his latest, American Hemp Farmer, and we can't forget about Farewell My Subaru. So we'll have a chance to touch on these books a little bit later, but I want to get right into it with Doug now. Um, and Doug, in your latest book, American Hemp Farmer, you begin by describing a moment uh, that you call your climate change Pearl Harbor. Could you describe that moment for our audience and the impact that it had on your thinking moving forward? 
Thank you, Steve. Yes, in fact, it's such an intense story that I'll leap right into it and go into my thanks for you and what a genuine inspiration you are to me and my work. But yes, this was, I had already made the decision to um, live, I guess you'd call fairly remote. I, I, I think of it as just trying to be a, a member of the animal kingdom on planet Earth. Um, but you have to get far away these days for that to happen and was doing my best despite a suburban up, upbringing to be as self-sufficient as possible just to see if it was possible for a regular guy to get rid of uh, fossil fuels as much as possible while keeping digital age comforts. So much of our carbon miles is in our food, the amount of petroleum we use. So got some goats, love them, still love goats. Um, milk them twice a day, uh, having a wonderful time with my family in this, in this remote uh, part of New Mexico. And in 2013, a, uh, um, uh, climate change induced uh, millennial wildfire, the kind of things we used to call millennial now happen whenever they happen every other year. Um, 130,000 acres was threatening to turn my family into one of the 20 million climate refugees on earth now, but in, in the numbers of course increasing. Um, if the monsoon rains hadn't come um, a day or two from when they did, we would have been evacuated. Um, but before this could happen, a bear that was a uh, refugee from the fire himself, a, a really big bear, a black bear, but, uh, but young, probably, you know, what we would consider an adolescent, um, woke up my family one morning, scaled our goat's fence, and basically in front of our eyes uh, started, started killing our goats. And um, it put, you know, the human family in danger as well, but the we didn't blame the bear. The bear was um, terrified. I had lost everything that he had known, which just went up in flames. And, uh, and he didn't uh, fare too well either uh, after going after some of my neighbor's sheep as well. But he wound up killing all but um, one, or, well, our, all our goats uh, on our Funky Butte Ranch here in New Mexico are named after singers that we love, but maybe have goat-like voices. So we, we lost. Natalie Merchant and Melissa Etheridge, but we, we Taylor Swift, the baby, um, survived. And there's an intense, uh, unforgettable moment when my sweetheart and I were tending to the injured goats, kind of triaging there. There was two separate times of bear attacked, left and came back again. And we were tending to the goats and we, our eyes met and um, we've discussed it afterwards. It, it was about... Uh, as you described it, that Pearl Harbor moment, this, this isn't a dress rehearsal. This is the bottom of the ninth for humanity. Like our real lives, our real family is really, really threatened and everyday action to mitigate the climate change factors that caused the wildfire that caused the bear refugee to attack and kill our goats um, was something we had to see what we could do. And for the purposes of, of, of the of this conversation it's about planting as much hemp as possible all regenerative crops but, but hemp especially because when cultivated in a regenerative manner in, in real soil outdoors it's some of the best uh uh tools that we have for every individual to actively sequester carbon so um that's a good segue to my next question <clears throat> in the book you make a pretty audacious claim and you say that the best way for us to mitigate climate change is to plant as much hemp as possible. Could you tell us, you know, what the basis for that claim is? 
the studies that I cite in the new book um, that you're kind enough to mention, American Hemp Farmer, um, they are, there are a lot of studies, but the studies that I cite sort of combine and average what uh, um, long-term studies that seem legit to me in my research are saying, which is that if we are uh, building an inch of topsoil on all current farmland in the world, if, we're, if we switch to regenerative practices on the world, we're essentially not only mitigating many billions of tons of carbon, but to quantify it, it, when you have groups like 350 talking about tipping points and the level of carbon in the atmosphere, that if we were to take that one action, we would uh, buy ourselves between a half century and a century to retool our industrial pipeline away from this often toxic um, petrochemical-based uh, feedstock that feeds everything from our devices to really our food even and and change that system overall to a regenerative one farming is you'd think it was the building industry or people driving cars or whatever it is but non-regenerative farming is one of the biggest contributors to um to co2 emissions and regenerative farming is one of the best solutions so um you mentioned carbon sequestration uh, hemp is a pretty interesting crop in that regard. Could you talk to us about some of the carbon sequestration properties of hemp? For those of us who learned about plant intelligence from cannabis especially, and it has been since being a hemp farmer that I've really learned so much about how smart plants are. Uh, be, uh, totemically, I'd been more connected to, to animal kingdom in the past, really through lack of experience. And just the way that you're watching it, even just coming in from our field this morning here in New Mexico, how much the plants can change overnight and the, the different leaf displays over the course of the day. Um, those of us who have the spiritual connection um, to all plants, cannabis and all plants, um, we think of it as a relationship. In other words, we do kind things to our friends and family because of uh, our love for them and we think we love the plants, the plants love us, and that's probably true. But when you get right down to it, there's a mechanical, a most, a largely mechanical explanation for why hemp is such a great phytoremediator or soil builder or carbon sequester. These are all synonyms. Um, and it has to do with the fact that it has unusually long tap roots for an annual plant, a plant that's replanted every year, unless, it, of course, it volunteers, which despite continued millions of taxpayer money, dollar money you and I are paying in our federal taxes every year to eradicate one of the most important and longest utilized plants along the you know, ditches of the US. Actually, they've survived Darwin, they're Darwin's cultivars. I love the, the ditchweed story, but um, the, they're very, very unusual tap, unusually long tap roots. And that is the secret. It's um, creating a condo complex underground for the beneficial microbes that cause our hemp and other regenerative crops through photosynthesis and their own processes to sequester carbon. And that's saving our grandchildren. <laughs> uh, so it gets, it starts with microbes and their relationship with hemp, hemp's roots. But if you're hugging a hemp plant and saying, thank you for, for uh, sequestering carbon, the part of the plant that we're thanking are the tap roots, the long roots. 
So I've heard uh, a figure of 1.4 metric tons of carbon sequestered for every acre of hemp harvested. Do you, do you think that's accurate? I came across that one too. And I, and I, th I may have even mentioned that one in the book and I, I, that sounds great to me, but I have a hard time visualizing what 1.4 you know, million, what that really means in terms of how much is humanity producing and how much do we sequester, you know? And, and so um, can we, let's say uh, one of the big goals I love to talk about is, something in the neighborhood of 180 million acres of hemp cultivated in the US causes it to match the annual production of corn, uh, wheat, soy, and cotton. Almost all of these um, are cultivated non-organically, meaning that there are uh, documented toxic uh, chemicals used in, in the herbicide and pesticide process that's become de rigueur in, in agriculture and is killing agricultural land worldwide and also killing farmers. But the once I know that fact that whatever it is that 140 million uh, pounds or tons of carbon per, per acre planted, if we factor that on a hundred that that admirable goal of matching corn, wheat, soy, and cotton at 180 something million acres of hemp, does that do it? Does that is that like problem solved with climate? I don't know the answer to that, but I don't know any other solution. You were so wise to quote Jack Herer, who really awoke everyone on, on, about hemp who said, I'm not claiming it's, you know, surely the solution. I'm just saying it's our only hope is to try it. Right. Who's got anything better um, uh, to offer. Right. Um, well, we've been, um, we've been talking and throwing the word hemp around a, a good bit. And uh, I believe that there's a, a lot of confusion uh, today about exactly what that word means. So let's talk about the lexicon a little bit. When, when, when we're talking about hemp, what are we talking about and how is it different from other kinds of cannabis? I love the way you framed that question because my answer is it is all one plant. Um, as recently as, let's say, prior to cannabis prohibition's federal implementation in 1937, um, for the 50 or 60 years prior to that, when the Kentucky Virginia region was leading um, was leading the nation in production there, there was no THC testing. People didn't know what THC was. It was what produced, generally speaking, the best fiber was the, generally the reason for Navy rigging and all that stuff. Um, so this separation came about in a 1976 Canadian paper in which the Canadians were thinking about restarting their hemp industry, smart people, and they, uh, the researchers, one of whom I interviewed for the new book, uh, who's getting on now, but really is aware of the discussion and has cogent take on it. Basically, they admitted that their choice was arbitrary. They just sampled many hundreds of different kinds of cultivars from around the world. And they're like, well, 0.3% or less is really safe as far as no one getting high. Um, so this new separation so it was created in my own view. And this is uh, trying to be a voice for independent farmers who are launching as cannabis uh, hemp farmer entrepreneurs from a regenerative standpoint, trying to rebuild rural communities. I, I see an, uh, a policy end game of ret returning to that unity, but I recognize that we have this difference now defined on a federal level for a short time longer only as 0.3% THC. We're going to get it to 1% hopefully this year and, and, and beyond. But 
that's where we're at when we talk about hemp versus other kind of cannabis. But I was very interesting doing our pre-interview and our, our research together before uh, before today's podcast, where I saw the Harborside um, awareness in your m- mind, because where was what was coming from a provider's perspective was when you were seeing things called hemp that looked like sensimia and smelled like sensimia, um, but met this federal arbitrary 0.3% definition, therefore it's hemp and not ganja. Where we're headed is a range of all kinds of entourage effects, I don't have to tell you this, of 110 known cannabinoids and terpenes and their interplay and they're gonna be distinct, there's gonna be terroir. This idea of separation is, um, is lunacy in my, my view. The last thing I'll say about that is some folks now within the hemp world kind of think of separating that CBD slash cannabinoid market of growing sensimia bushes from some other category of industrial hemp, such as my, uh, my shirt, and I'm sure more than one thing that you're wearing today, and, um, and all the other applications, the superfood shake that I had this morning, for instance, with hemp, hemp seeds in it. Um, as though they were separate categories. To my mind, leave that up to the farmer. I happen to enjoy growing tri-crop. I use, even though I grow dioecious, flower, male and, male and female, seeded flower, which would be worthless on the dispensary market today. I use that flower. We eat that flower in my family and my commercial product, which I, which I grow USDA certified organic in Vermont, um, is also seeded flour. So we use the flour. We obviously use the seeds, high protein superfood. We can talk about that. And it's a beautiful textile grade fiber that I would love to see fine markets. So to my mind, it's they're literally call it cannabis, ganja, hemp, whatever you want, literally no difference. But I recognize that in the world today, there, there are divisions, uh, amongst different of the applications and, and, and we, we have to, I guess, implement those in our lexicon. Yeah, you know, to me, it seems like we really do need at least one new word. Here's the way that I look at it. The, the question of what is or isn't hemp has become very confused because of a legal loophole, which allows people to grow cannabis that's intended for human consumption um, without getting licensed um, by any state cannabis authority. Uh, provided that cannabis is 0.3% or less THC. Um, uh, and uh, so for me, the, the, the way that I would take a look at the real differences in cannabis is, is that there are two major types of cannabis. Cannabis, which is grown, intended for human consumption and all of the products that are made from that. And cannabis, which is grown to make things out of. Uh, that's a very natural division. It's, it is one plant, but you grow them quite differently depending on, on what, the, what the use is. The question would be, um, if, if, if we have hemp, and I would argue that hemp should be the word that we use for stuff we make out of cannabis, and we have this large word, cannabis, which sort of is everything that's cannabis, we have a missing word what do we call cannabis that is intended for human consumption? Anybody got any good ideas? I think it's time to sit down and have a smoke and come up with something very inventive, boys and girls. So give that one a little bit of a thought. 
So we've been talking about this 0.3% limit, and you just mentioned a 1% limit. Actually, there are some places in the world, like the country of Colombia, that has a 1% threshold for THC. And just to set this frame for our viewers who might not be aware of it, the, the, when we're talking about a 0.3% threshold, if you, if you have any larger amount of THC than that in there, then your crop is declared hot. Uh, in the United States, if, if you go over 0.3%, uh, the crops have to be destroyed, absolutely destroyed. You can't convert them to another use. You can't do anything with them. So, Doug, you've had some, some real firsthand knowledge of, of, of this predicament. Could you sort of give us the, the farmer's eye view of what happens with the 0.3% and the 1% and the whole concept that you should choose your hemp varietals according to what their THC content or is or is not? I'm going through it right now. Um, my state inspection is coming up um, for my for my ranch crop, home crop, and um, 0.3 is not only arbitrary, it's unworkable. The cannabis plant has evolved for a long time to have the components in it that it wants just as we have the components in us so that are ideal for our health and if someone were to say well we can't have you know hemoglobin in our blood anymore because there's a chance that vampires might drink them you're you're uh throwing the baby out with the bathwater. the for instance the most textiles today are not made in the u.s for a lot of reasons including labor uh you know costs and, and stuff like that but um this shirt uh was made in india and in india nobody's thc testing the crop to see whether or not it's uh over 0.3 or anything else they're just growing what they know makes the best fiber and that's that's all that should matter. So at the moment, I'm sweating another 0.3 test. I am cautiously optimistic um, that, that, that it will pass. This cultivar usually passes and always passes in, in New Mexico. And um, uh, so I think it'll, it'll be good. But this is a thing farmers shouldn't have to ever go through. This, the burden of this should be completely removed uh, from farmers, even if, you know, as you say that we look at it just as human ingested variety, you know, to parts of the plant versus anything else, even then, even the farmer who may be cultivating varieties that who, whose flower will go to the public, it shouldn't be the farmer whose crop is being tested for anything, cannabinoids or things you don't want in your product, like uh, heavy metals or something like that. That is all done by the person and maybe it's the farmer i like vertical enterprises but the person that is moving it to to the market to cons to customers the burden for actually testing should be totally off the farmers that said we're just out of prohibition now and we're not 100 percent out of federal prohibition hemp's out of pro federal prohibition but cannabis isn't and so therefore we have to take incremental steps and the first step that everybody seems to agree on and in, in the hemp world right now is let's get it to one percent and that from every test that I've, THC and cannabinoid test I've ever been involved in and people that I've covered journalistically has been involved in, that solves the problem. So I think it's safe to say it almost definitely saves 90% of the problem, but it saves 99% of the people that I've ever spoken to. And it's a, it's a good first test, first, first step that generally speaking, you're gonna have variety over, depending on where you plant, but probably not over 1%. So, it's a good uh, first step. As you mentioned, there are countries, including uh, Ecuador, just joined the 1% team 
last week with Switzerland, Thailand, there's a bunch of countries and um, it's just a sensible, it's a sensible first step. So we have a, you know, a practical way of addressing the majority of the running hot problems. And that's just to increase the threshold from 0.3% to 1%. But let's pull back a little bit here and think about what we are really looking at. It's my belief, and I know it's your belief, Doug, that hemp can probably replace most of the raw materials that are being used in our world today. Things like cotton, which consumes a huge amount of pesticides and other toxic chemicals, timber, which involves all of the forest uh, being cut down all across the world, petroleum, of course, which is clogging our oceans with plastic and heating up our atmosphere. These raw materials truly are deadly. They are killing the world. And here we have hemp, hemp, which could possibly replace almost everything that we use to provide for ourselves, to have the things that we need for our sustenance. The decision about what variety of hemp to grow should strictly be based on what variety is best for its intended use. If it's being grown for fiber, what variety grows the best fiber? If it's being grown for seed oil, which produces the largest amount of seeds, you're gonna get the highest yield and highest quality. What we should not be doing is taking the world's most promising new eco-friendly raw material, the thing which really is the light of hope for humanity now, and making decisions about what kind of varieties to use on outmoded, outdated, ridiculous, stupid, ignorant, racist ideology. There's just too much at stake for that to continue any longer. You know, another um, one of the things that, that we hope to see out of the cannabis renaissance that we're all a part of is some more equity in the economic realm. One of the things that we've seen in the United States and in many other countries around the world is that small farmers, independent farmers, uh, have been chased off of the land. The land has been eaten by huge corporations. And those huge corporations put machines and toxic chemicals on the land, which strips it of its nutrients and, and leads us into this very, very dark future. So part of the vision is to bring people back into the land along with the hemp. And so Doug, being a small independent hemp farmer, um, why do you see and how do you see hemp offering an option for small and independent farmers to continue staying on the land? It seems to be the only option, Steve, because wholesale prices, for instance, of CBD are, have already cratered. We're in that Wild West mentality with the whole cannabis industry, but, it's, but uh, especially with hemp now, um, where farmers were receiving ganja wholesale prices, $3,000 a wholesale pound in Oregon three years ago. And now in the, sometimes it's in the realm of three to $20 a pound. That's a, that's a really radical, radical shift. Like, you know, if you're trying to run a, a farm on uh, enterprise and an independent farm enterprise, that's not a stable model. And so uh, a more stable model, which requires a lot more work and multi-year game plan also not easy for a struggling farm with a, mor with a mortgage is to create a top shelf hemp product. And I think this is true of, of, of ganja farmers too, uh, that is 
as Dolly Parton would say, you got to be first, better, or different in this world to succeed. And and so, you know, something that is so distinct has such a terroir that when people see it in the fine cannabis shop in the Sonomas of the world or wherever, they're going to um, want it want to examine it. it it could be what michael pollan calls the supermarket pastoral the storyline um you know surfers paradise hemp sunscreen which is like listen we were getting torched every day and we didn't want to put microfibers and toxins on our skin so we made our own hemp product and we grow it ourselves with our cousins in fresno who wouldn't buy that sunscreen i would buy that sunscreen but yeah it it, it requires um uh just a ton of ton of work um so it's it's certainly not a gimme especially you know we've all encountered those farmers in the emerald triangle and ganja farmers that were really worried about legalization because prohibition prices were putting their kids through college i mean this is a radical shift and we can't minimize uh we can't minimize the um the the, the effort and the risk and the sort of the non-guaranteed uh, reality of any entrepreneurial effort, let alone one that's depending on Mother Nature smiling and and evolving regulations. This is not for the faint-hearted, but the payoff. I'm not like the definer of karma, but it feels to me like if you're trying to do this thing of no longer growing GMO soybeans that are putting dicamba and other toxins in the soil, and you're going to now invest in spending a couple of years cleaning up that soil with hemp before you market the hemp. Um, that's a, that's an entity, you know, cleaning my farm soil farm enterprise that I would want to support. So it's up to us as customers, as, as well as those of us that are farmers to seek out these, these top shelf terroir niche enterprises and support many, 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 many of them instead of, Oh my gosh, this, these hemp hearts are 12 cents cheaper at the box store. We've got to shift our, our thinking a little bit on that. So really we need to think about being a community, right? Um, of having cannabis consumers be really aware of where their cannabis is coming from and the impact that their buying choices have. There's lots of different cannabis companies out there. And one of the things you'll hear me say frequently is that I think that cannabis consumers, the cannabis tribe should give their dollars or whatever money they spend to the companies that empower our community. And it seems like one of the keys to success, or at least one of the routes to success, is not just being a farmer, but also thinking about products that you can make, some value-added products that you can make out of that hemp that you're growing. One of the things that we've seen here in the United States is a lot of people Farmers started growing hemp in order to supply the CBD market. And they were very, very dependent on that market. They had no other market than that market for their hemp. And as the price of CBD has dropped, uh, many of those companies are now going belly up. So the approach of really thinking about a sustainable hemp product, something that people are going to need and are going to want to use, going into the future for years and years and years and trying to produce that under your own control is one of the routes forward um, for being a successful hemp farmer. Um, so let's, let's talk about food a little bit. Um, I had uh, some guests on my last episode from the, uh, they were the authors of the FAT report, which is a report uh, which outlines in great detail 
how we might be able to build a just, equitable, and sustainable cannabis industry. And one of the claims that they make there is that hemp protein could serve as a replacement for animal protein and help lead people to a more plant-based diet. Could you talk to us a little, Doug, about the nutritional properties of hemp and then some of the different kinds of hemp foods we, we see now and what's coming in the future? Absolutely. Hemp is a true superfood. Um, the, let's start with the protein. Um, one of the cultivars that I grow, we tested uh, one year at 31% protein, you know, in this, in the seed, technically hemp is a nut, by the way, not a, not a seed. And um, it, um, so already great protein source. Um, it has high, um, amounts of certain minerals that are hard for vegetarian and vegan diets to get, including magnesium and selenium. Um, but here are the two. So a lot of people kind of know about that. It's a mineral rich, protein rich superfood. That's great. Um, but there are two dynamics that are especially exciting. The first I learned from John Rulak, founder of Nutiva, that um, hemp is a rare source a dietary source of gamma linoleic acid or gla which among other things is associated with anti-inflammatory properties we um, are extremely inflamed uh species right now you know a lot of it has to do with i think chemicals and pesticide residues in plants but you know i mean i've done a little you know fair amount of research on this but whatever the reasons are people are feeling inflamed in all their cell cells eyes are inflamed from air pollution let's say whatever it is and gamma linoleic acid is associated with anti-inflammatory properties that um right there is exciting and super important the last dynamic on the dietary ed that has me super excited is new research um something that i wrote about in in, in american hemp farmer I was asked to be a researcher on a University of Hawaii project, which uh, I'm just going to pause right there and say, are we, are we lucky to be alive? Or somebody says, can you come to, you know, just fly in six or 10 times a year for a week or so at a time to help us on this project in, in paradise. Uh, okay. If you insist. Um, and, and by the way, and grow cannabis with us. Okay. Deal. Um, so, um, this was a several year project and um, and it was actually seed development for the state program there. But, but the fellow, Professor Ching Lee of University of Hawaii, the reason that he was sort of happy to be the signatory to this project, he's a chemist. And he had already done a first round of research and wanted to grow more hemp to do further research. Um, he had done a first round of research indicating that a hemp-based diet um, may inhibit the expansion of lipid cells. So in layman's term, or as I put it in the book, in terms of this dietary bestseller we wanna to do to get those 180 million acres of hemp cultivated, hemp keeps you thin. Getting at, again, pre preliminary, preliminary studies, right? But what the first stage promising studies are showing is we all have uh, the same number of lipid cells in our bodies. They don't, the, their numbers don't change, but when one gets fat, they're expanding, they're filling out. Um, hemp inhibits that, which explains why I am not a lot fatter because I eat like a lot of chocolate and, and a fair amount of fatty stuff, a little sugar, I hope, but still I eat fatty stuff and it must be my hemp diet, my very large hemp seed diet that um, is inhibiting me from, from looking like Fat Albert. So thanks, thank you, hemp. And 
and our co-evolution with the cannabis plant, knowing what we want, so we keep planting her. Um, and in answer to your second question, um, some of the ways that I like to eat hemp and uh, all that, there's so many ways. I mean, I'm lucky in harvesting thousands of pounds of seeds around the country, uh, you know, organically certified or at least organically grown, you know, style-wise, um, that I could just, I can go, you know, right out into our kitchen and just stick a scooper and a bunch of raw hemp seeds and eat them. And um, I love that. I love making uh, hemp um, um, microgreens, which are, I've done hemp sprouts as well, but microgreens are a little different. You grow actually in the soil and you eat them when they're only a day or two over sprouts, you soak them, right? Soak the seeds. So, all of these things I think are valuable and healthy, but not everybody has that much access to raw seeds these days. Um, so the common products are um, hemp hearts, which are just the seeds de-hulled. They're, they're delicious. Um, they're, they're, for a producer, they're valuable. If you've got 50 acres in North Dakota that you want to devote to organic hemp and you, you get a de-huller, you can sell those hemp seeds for a very good, good living. To, to my mind, hemp hearts are a little bit of um, over-engineering just because why take the holes off? Just just eat the whole seed, um, which was the go-to soccer practice snack, roasted salted hemp seed in, in Iran for 50 or 60 years, an Iranian engineer told me one time. Um, uh, let's see, what else? Uh, when you press the hemp seed in a screw press, it becomes the very valuable hemp seed oil. And I've eaten most of the variety, most everything we're discussing today, I've eaten today already. Um, and I'm not done yet. Um, so the hemp seed oil is great. And one of the nice things about the byproduct of hemp seed oil is it's this hemp protein, sometimes called a protein cake. And that you can make for human consumption into great, you know, uh, um, uh, pancakes and, and, and anything along those lines, any kind of flowery type products. Um, but they also are valuable in beauty and healthcare uh, products for topicals and vast market that needs much improvement, um, uh, livestock, um, livestock feeding the so much of our gmo corn that's toxic to soil is just grown to feed the cows and um i i, I don't want to ramble too long steve but i'll end the, this food answer with something that kind of very uh, uh, older woman uh told me at a book reading one time she came up gingerly afterwards and said you know i know what you're talking about about the food because i remember first thing in nebraska growing up and this must have been early 30s before prohibition uh planting my daddy would plant hemp on the irrigation ditch first thing i knew the winter was over and the reason for that was whether we had drought or flood the integrity of those long roots we were talking about was keeping the the, the flooding away um but i knew it was harvest i knew it was that it was cattle finishing time because we finished our cattle on those hemp seeds and on those hemp leaves they loved them they fattened up and we had a competitive advantage over others because our cattle was healthier and my daddy said it was because of the hemp diet at the end of their life cycle. Wow. You know, I just think about how many examples you've just laid out of, of how the web of life is so interconnected and how beautiful it is, the, the kind of world that we can live in if we take the time to study Mother Earth. So here we have this remarkable plant that revitalizes the soil, that sequesters carbon, that stops erosion. And when we harvest it, and when we eat the protein that that plant gives us, it starts stripping out some of the poison that our bodies have accumulated from all of the chemicals that we've been using. And it starts helping us return our body weight back to something that's more balanced and more healthy. 
Uh, it's good for the soil. It's good for our weight. It's good for inflammation. And if we grow enough of it, and if we grow it in the right way, we can start creating an economic system that will allow us to provide for ourselves without these ridiculous numbers of tons of chemicals being poured onto Mother Earth. So Doug, um, talk to us a little bit about your, your relationship with cannabis and, and how that has inspired your life's work. This maybe is the place where I can say uh, thank you, Steve D'Angelo, because it's when you started um, devoting your life to can to cannabis reemerging from from the underground to the above above ground, it wasn't a safe thing to do. I mean, in in our recollection, our kids will laugh about this presidential candidates had to drop out or claim that they didn't inhale or for having a relationship with one of humanity's longest utilized plants, something that has been so valuable, uh, you know, to, to human health and well-being for so long. Um, before sedentary agriculture, we, we humans carried it around in our pouches. Anthropologists call it a camp follower plant. Um, and George H.W. Bush, Gosh, he could have said thank you to the plant whose cord, hemp cord, saved him when he his parachute was made from it in World War II. That that reason alone, well, it's just this plant's been good to me. It saved my life. Uh, let's bring it above ground. Um, so when you started talking about it, it wasn't safe. Um, although I really enjoy the cannabis plant and I love plants, and it's helped awaken me really, as I said earlier, to all kinds of plant intelligence. We infuse bee balm as a, as a teeth whitener. Um, I wear my kids just after our podcast, I'm making a, a stir fry from our kale. It's all awesome to me and cannabis just being um, one of them. It's another plant in the garden is, but it's just an, and a particularly awesome one. Um, but folks will say to me, you know, my first cannabis, I've written some cannabis journalism, but first cannabis book came out in 2011. Sure. It was, before the first state legalizations, but people are saying, well, that's brave of you to openly advocate for this. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? There's people that have been fighting for a long time for this. And you are prominent among that group where I, I read quotes of yours um, uh, at the time I was researching Too High to Fail, which was about uh, um, uh, regenerative cannabis farmers in the Emerald Triangle trying to form cooperatives and come above ground for the good of patients and their, and their plants, because only medicinal was legal then, medicinal cannabis. You were being quoted at that time when this menacing, awful U.S. attorney from Northern California was threatening you, threatening herbicide. You're like, yeah, sure, come on, carry me out in chains. If you want, drag me out, I'll be back the next day. We're going to win, you're going to lose, and you're right. And that was when it was brave to be saying, it's been very easy for me to, to talk about um, cannabis as part of really not only my own health maintenance and my own family's well-being but my patriotism like i i'm proud of the uh colonial importance of hemp i'm proud of the hemp for victory project during world war ii as an american the plant's been so important to america not many people know this i bet you do since 19 i want to say 94 the hemp has been listed by presidential declaration presidential special order as a key crop to be cultivated in times of na national emergency so that was under clinton who didn't like to admit that he inhaled um so my relationship with with the plant is um that it's a uh 
a, a plant that I absolutely love and um, my per personally, and it's essential to my dietary um, well-being, I believe. And my ultimate goal um, moving forward is where it is really just considered another, a shrug. It's a shrug. Our kids and our grandkids will sort of hear these stories. They'll be in their, in their food co-op and they'll be getting, and you know, this much ganja and this, this, um, oh yeah, we're having that uh, party. Let's get a few cucumbers. But it'll just be a thing that you get. Um, and they'll laugh at our war stories that it was for, for a short time treated as, as something else. That's, um, that's what I hope, uh, the end game game is here. And no question in my mind at all, Doug, that when the history is written here, some decades uh, into the future, um, that, 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 that that reality is going to be encoded in it, okay? Um, that humanity has used this plant, as far as we can tell, from before we were even really fully human beings, we co-evolved with the cannabis plant. It has been part of human culture for thousands and thousands of years, ever since there was such a thing as human civilization. And it's only been in the last hundred years or so that the human species has more or less willingly divorced itself from the most valuable plant that we've ever had. Those days are assuredly coming to an end because we can no longer afford on this planet to ignore cannabis any longer. Doug, um, let's back up a little bit here and, and um, understand who you are and what you're up to a, a little bit more. Um, maybe you could talk to us a bit about Funky Butte Ranch and what your trajectory to the ranch was. Well, thanks for that. I lived for a number of years in Alaska and learned a lot because I grew up in the suburbs. So I had very few uh, survival skills and um, my first book was called Not Really an Alaskan Mountain Man. And it was just about the locals laughing at my attempts to transition to an actual member of the animal kingdom trying to survive. But um, you can't help but live for a number of years in that um, place without um, appreciating the, the importance of living ecosystems, but also um, toughening up a little bit in terms of um, being able to take care of yourself a little bit. Um, Moved to New Mexico, fell in love, have a wonderful family, two kids whom we homeschool. Um, as you kindly mentioned earlier, I wrote a book called Farewell My Subaru, which was about um, trying to remove fossil fuels from, from our life here on the Funky View Ranch, but keep digital age comforts. You know, was it doable? Was it not an all or nothing proposition? So much of that has to do with what we've been talking about today, the biomaterials that feed into it. So my hemp and cannabis work that followed was really a logical extension of my work in regenerative living, my, my efforts to live regeneratively. So, you know, some of it's really obvious stuff, solar panels and solar pumps for the water system, milking goats to reduce the carbon miles in the food. And that's, a, that's been one of the fun, real fun and bane of, banes of my existence, both goats. Humans have been around goats as long as we've been around dogs, and we have that same um, relationship, the sixth sense with them. But goats aren't as interested in pleasing you in the immediate moment. Um, they know at 6 p.m. they're going to be giving you this milk that you want and need. So if they don't feel like uh, coming down from that butte right now when you thought you heard a mountain lion over there, they won't. Um, sometimes they do. Um, this may be the time to uh, bring forth the um, hemp plastic goat that I like to carry everywhere um, these days. 
uh, to symbolize goodbye Pacific Garbage Patch, we were talking about the biomaterials um, returning to hemp and other biomaterials. There's a town I wrote about in the book called Hemp, in the book Hemp Bound, a previous book uh, called Feldheim, Germany, which takes all of its region, all of the county uh, waste biomass. The farmers, if they're good, will compost, and if not, they're just burning. And they bring it to a gasification unit and it creates power. Not only does it create power for an entire, essentially, county, but it uh, reduce their unemployment rate from the highest in Germany to the lowest because now the unemployed work at the plant. Uh, so, um, so biomass, uh, not just for energy and, and our stuff and our materials, um, but next generation supercapacitors, that's something that's really exciting to me. Um, I'll finish a quick point on the Funky Butte Ranch, and I wanted to just quickly touch on something you mentioned earlier that I thought was a good and important point. So here on the ranch, um, you know, I mentioned we homeschool and our life is really pretty much about the four humans and the bunch of four-leggeds that are around it. We, I, I love traveling and, and performing and doing readings and, 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 and filming and doing radio work and all that good stuff. Um, and then I get my, my fill of it and I really love being at home and the, the rhythm of being the alarm clock being a hummingbird's wings instead of a car alarm and um, just kind of going out and stretching within the hemp field. I love uh, just all of that stuff. I love seeing microbes. I love seeing worms, you know, loving the microbial rich uh, soil and all, all that business. Um, the one point I wanted to touch on that you mentioned earlier was just the sort of farmer's rights to cultivate the types of hemp cannabis that they want without interference. I think that along with raising the THC level to 1% immediately, that second point, that, that genetic freedom to farm is at the crooks, not just of the hemp and cannabis industry right now, but of, of humanity's ability to survive. I mean, again, these are times where people can, can talk big because there's big stuff happening, but I, I, I don't say this lightly. And the reason I don't say it lightly is that this idea of a company owning the seeds and the farmers being serfs to them, it's pure serfdom. And it's the same thing if you're growing chickens for a major chicken company, they own everything. And if you're lucky, you get a little something that keeps you in the debt cycle while you're poisoning your so every soil every now and then, maybe there'll be some kind of price spike and you can get a new truck, but um, it's not a functional long-term healthy life from the vast majority of farmers. And, um, in hemp, we have this opportunity. This is where I like to say hug a prohibitionist because by keeping our plant out of the messed up way that agriculture has been done for the last 80 years where farmers are serfs to a few seeds. Imagine Charles Ingalls out on the prairie in Little House on the Prairie harvesting his wheat and saying, oh goodness, we better go a thousand miles and buy some more wheat seeds because we don't own these wheat seeds. We're not allowed to save them. That's uh, it's a human right to save your seed. It's un-American to claim anything otherwise. So when we're discussing with ag departments now, this level playing field is what I call it in the new book, this level genetic level playing field where for a certain number of times, the years, let's call it 10 plus years, farmers should be able to grow any variety of cannabis that they want, um, that, they, that works best for their applications um, without it being enslaved to, uh, that's, sorry, that's a strong word, without being serfs to, to, uh, to, to, to some seed entity. If they want to do that, because the seeds will be cheaper, and if you can trust that the seeds will stay cheap, same quality, all that business from this company that's providing you seed that you don't own, sure, if you want to do that to make some hemp parts, that's fine. But most of us in this now are entrepreneurial, and we absolutely have to have the right to cultivate 
the seeds that we want and develop the genetics we want. That's our business model. That's our entrepreneurial advantage. You mentioned a couple of things that I just can't let go without, without us digging a little bit deeper into. One was hemp plastics and one was hemp supercapacitors. So what's the story with hemp plastics today? I mean, we've heard a lot of talk about it. Is it are we going to start seeing products made out of hemp plastics on the market? I hope so. Everything to do with the fiber side of the cannabis hemp plant now is embryonic. There has not been a critical mass breakthrough with the potential, you know, exception of um, of textiles. You know, places like Hungary, India, China are keeping keeping it going with the textiles, but um, hemp ropes, which are superior performing, there's no uh, there's no professional that I know of professional rock climbers that are using natural fiber ropes. It's all synthetics. Um, so we're, we're embryonic in, in all of these things. Um, and it requires acreage. Another metric I examined in the book is for a community to really try and get a cooperative going where regardless if you're growing for ganja, CBD, CBG, or seeds or whatever, you've got the fiber, right? Everybody cooperates. It goes to a central facility. The smallest one of these for, let's say a region, a portion of New Mexico, let's say, would be five to $8 million and require 3,100 acres of feedstock. These are not unfeasible numbers, but they're big and professional numbers. So we don't, and that's the smallest. So we, we really um, don't have the infrastructure and capacity on the fiber uh, side yet, and it's probably going to require uh, farmer collaboration. And there are folks working on this stuff. That said, it's a central part of the puzzle. We're talking about dietary improvement through the seeds, spiritual and health maintenance improvement through the flower, phytoremediation, cleaning up soil, sequestering carbon with the roots. The fiber is really, really vital. Um, so we're, when it comes to plastics, you can do hemp-based plastics at any, I'm um, gonna hold it up close there just so folks get a closer look at it. You can, this is what they call PLA, which is the same type of plastics that's in Legos. So for instance, this type of plastic, and, and I, from what I hear, I think Lego is talking about moving to biomaterials and it's plastic. Um, this will not compost quickly on its own. That's the design. If you have a rocket part made out of hemp going to the space station, you don't want it to self-destruct. That said, churn this up into small pieces and it's, it's, it's soil again. Um, the issue is having enough feedstock. It doesn't require a lot of feedstock um, to, to do plastic and it doesn't require, high, it does require a lot. It doesn't require a high quality feedstock. The issue is the binder. These are, this is the big variable folks. If there are some smart engineers watch, you know, watching today, the issue is in all of our society, the binders, the adhesives, the glues, the gels, these are, these have got to get cleaned up. And, and once again, as they did during the age of exploration where uh, the, the hash museum in Amsterdam told me, hemp fiber went into the boat cracks, hemp seed oil mixed with pine pitch and all that stuff went into the outer cracks. It's a different mentality. It would survive salt water and a huge journey for a year, but not 50 years. There were people that would have to maintenance it when it came back. Like this is a, what we think we just chuck crap away that's not how it works. You actually keep things going and, and reapply them. But good news is the farmer's growing that next bit of fiber and seed oil for you to be able to be able to use. So um, last thing on plastic is, is this is technically I, the, uh, um, what do they call them? The materials engineers that I interview, they are very sensitive about this kind of thing. This is a composite, meaning that it is mixed with, uh, it's the hemp fiber mixed with a binder, which is, sounds good, corn binder, but it's a Cargill non-organic uh, little corn pellet product 
which, you know, God bless them for, you know, it's better than petrochemicals, but it was grown with petrochemicals. So um, we need the smart engineers to be working on hemp and other uh, biomaterials for our binders. It's not enough to just put the fiber in there. And this is true for our cars, our rockets, everything that gets glued, uh, children's toys, uh, all the things that we don't feel good about kids putting in their mouths today, uh, we can have superior performance on. For things that are more immediately compostable, like if we want to get rid of plastic serving ware and styrofoam, but lunch, lunch containers, that's an easier process. That's pulping. I've seen it done in many places. Anybody can do it and it's not expensive. So that, that's the, the long and the short on plastics. <laughs> and supercapacitors, give me a, just a minute on supercapacitors. Okay, so this is a real problem, right? I mean, it's a miracle. We got to appreciate the good things that have been given to us, but it's, it's a problem because of the uh, uh, rare earth, for a lot of reasons, human rights and uh, in factories that assemble it and, uh, and, and the chemicals that actually go in. Samsung had to apologize to thousands of employees who were made sick after 10 years of stonewalling. Um, for just the toxic stuff in our devices that we then carry everywhere and use everywhere and, and have, you know, or we're able to have this conversation, thank goodness. But um, so in order to make those more, hemp has come through again, in order to make those more regenerative, the long and the short, quickly on, on supercapacitors. Um, next generation uh, devices that are going to charge batteries, hopefully with solar panels, charge our phones, all that kind of stuff. Those supercapacitors are what makes the batteries charge really fast. And today the nanomaterials in them are toxic and expensive. And miracle of miracles, a researcher then in Canada, now in New York, found that hemp um, feedstock, <coughs> excuse me, hemp feedstock makes at the nano level, at the one carbon level, a more efficient, way cheaper, not to mention incredibly much more greener, uh, nano part particulate um, called graphene that goes into next generation supercapacitors. So it, it's outperforming. Now, the, why does it do that? At that one carbon level, hemp has this folded waffle-like increased surface area just another divine gift or maybe the plant knew that these hairy apes were going to one day get to the digital uh awareness and they said we're going to make it at the nano level that hemp is also the solution well i will go with the i will go with the divine inspiration <laughs> there uh, that's the conclusions that i've come to doug uh thanks so much for spending some time with us uh you've been really successful in in building a career that allows you to carry the message about cannabis forward and, and also provide for your family any last words of advice for young folks who are wondering how to do that for themselves oh thanks for that um i would say and thank, thank you so much for having me it's an honor to speak to you anytime you've been a true inspiration to me and not just as you know lessons from successful people yourself but how long you fought for this plant and what a kind-hearted human you, you are all those are a rare you get some of that in some people Stephen. uh you got it all and i'm i'm, I'm uh uh appreciated i also should mention upcoming projects i'm collaborating with your brother who's executive producing a television show that i'm trying to develop called american hemp farmer same same as the new book so hopefully next time we visit here we can show you clips um, from that um but advice, advice, I would say, um, uh, f first and foremost, 
um, believe in yourself and your own ideas there. I don't think that it's a bad thing necessarily to work for someone else, especially um, for a for a period of time. But if you have an idea that you believe in, it's not going to come easy and it's not going to come quick and you have to be willing to work for it for decades. Whatever you choose to do, it has to be something that you could not possibly be happy doing any anything else. Um, and I guess the last bit of advice specifically to cannabis hemp farmer entrepreneurs, please not just cultivate regeneratively using some of the techniques we've been talking about, soil building and kind water use and all that, but right through the whole process, no excuses. Think about regenerative practices, uh, solar powering your facilities, compostable uh, um, packaging, or at least maybe returnable bottles, that kind of thing. Think about it and end game. Do you aspire to be in the Walmarts and Costco's or do you just want to serve a region and help build your, your communities? Um, Wendell Berry, the great, uh, Kentucky farmer philosopher in the one thing he's ever said to me um, said tell this to hemp uh, farmers that if you just rely on the wholesale markets and you just think that you can churn out the popcorn and send it out um, you're gonna get in I'm paraphrasing obviously he's 80 something um, you're gonna you're going to end up, he said, having the same problems as a soybean and the other uh, other industries. It's just going to be the farmers are screwed. This time, uh, I like to say this time, the farmers are in charge. Thank you, Steve. Well, may it may it be so. May may all these things unfold. May hemp reach its full potential. Thank you for carrying that torch uh, so well and so long yourself, Doug. Um, it's a it's very much appreciated we are going to wrap up with doug now and we're going to wrap up the podcast i hope that it's been informative for all of you i always learn something when i sit down and talk to doug fine be sure to check out his various different books doug how can our audience stay in touch with you and what you're what you've got going on old-fashioned website dougfine.com has links to book sales journalism from all over the world and some fun videos hopefully news on the tv show soon and social media at organic cowboy it's all pushed together in one word with the two c's in the middle at organic cowboy now you all know how to stay in touch with doug fine and please be sure to do that our conversation today has reminded me once again of how complex the cannabis plant is how many different chemical components go into it, all the different ways that it can be grown, the different uses that those crops can be put to, the effect that it has in our bodies and on the planet, on the land that it's grown in. Our opponents, the people who wish to banish cannabis entirely from the planet, have built on this complexity and erected a whole range of divisions, of barriers, of ways to divide us, this idea that there's recreational cannabis or medical cannabis, that there's hemp, that there's 1%, that there's 0.3%. What we know, those of us who love this plant, is that Mother Nature, in her kindness and wisdom and generosity, blessed us with one plant that simultaneously wakes up our spirits and our souls, puts us in closer touch with the web of life, and also gives us the tools that we need to build the new world that we are dreaming of. I look forward to working with all of you to keep on building that world. And a special word now 
to those of you, and I know you're out there, who are facing difficult circumstances because of your love of cannabis. Those of you who have been arrested, those of you who may be facing trial, perhaps you're in prison, perhaps you're in a place where you can't get cannabis or you have to hide your use from everybody around you, even your loved ones. Remember, you are not alone. There are hundreds of millions of us all around the world. Collectively, we are larger than all but the largest nations on this planet. And we are coming. Change is coming. We will not rest and we will not stop until every person on this planet who needs cannabis has it and until our last prisoner is freed and comes home to their families. I look forward to getting together with you next week for another episode, another chapter in this great world.